0: How are you getting on?
1: Yeah, not bad, Dan. So we made it through April. God, it was quicker than March, wasn't it? I wonder what's in store for May.
0: Yeah, well, it certainly puts a new spin on that good old saying, sell in May and go away, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> it does indeed. Where would you go? To the next room?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Stay six feet away or something.
1: Yeah. Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: So this week on Investment Uncut, we welcome special guest Anais Caldwell-Jones. Anais, welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Thank you very much. Anais, would you like to tell the listeners a bit about what you do at LCP and your area of expertise?
2: Yeah, sure. So I've been with LCP for around four and a half, coming up to five years now. I broadly split my time 50-50 between client work. So mainly advising defined benefit pension schemes on their investment strategy. And then the other 50% of my time is doing investment research a range of macroeconomic research. So I work very closely with Natalie on LCP's macro team. You had Natalie on last week and also a lot of equity research in particular emerging market equities.
0: Great. So that's going to be the theme of today's conversation, obviously, and emerging markets. And we're lucky because you've actually got two experts on that topic because you, you research that area as well, don't you, Mary?
1: Yeah, that's right. I've been leading our emerging market research for a few years now, so
0: it should be a good discussion. Super. We'll get to that in a second. But first of all, and I just wanted to ask, what's one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile?
2: I guess not at all investment related, but I spent the first 15, 16 years of my life wanting to be an architect until I realized I was rubbish at both art and design. So I thought I was better suited to a life being an investment consultant.
0: Cool. No regrets? Not so far. Not yet. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> it's Three a difficult time like.
2: at the moment.
0: Great. Okay, well, I suppose rather than designing buildings, designing investment strategies still has some elements of design work to it, doesn't it?
2: Financial modeling rather than real life modeling.
0: <laughs> Quite, exactly. Yeah. yeah,
1: I like the parallels you're drawing there. Nice.
0: All sorts of things you can go with that. Built on sturdy foundations, all sorts of stuff. But anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> Fine. So emerging markets, I guess, where should we start then to set the scene with that one? Is it worth starting with some sort of macro observations and sort of where we are and where we see emerging markets today?
2: Yeah, sure. So in terms of our kind of central LCP macro outlook, over the long term, we have a positive view of emerging markets and think that they are a worthwhile investment for kind of a whole range of clients, really. That's not to ignore kind of the potential for a lot of short term volatility, given a lot of the economic uncertainty that Natalie um, talked about quite a lot last week. I would summarise kind of the short term outlook or split it more up into kind of direct effects of coronavirus and possibly more indirect effects. So direct effects, I would go with any impact that the actual virus might have on kind of countries. So countries with kind of high Mortality rates due to coronavirus or kind of high infection rates um, might struggle. But there's also lots of indirect consequences as a result of a strengthening um, U.S. dollar with lots of investors moving to the U.S. dollar as it's seen as a safe asset. And there's also a lot of potential for some emerging market economies to struggle due to falling oil prices.
1: I think that's really interesting, isn't it, on your first point about direct consequences from the virus? Because when you think theoretically about this, you might expect emerging market countries to be less well-equipped to deal with the virus, the outbreak, partly in relation to sort of the health service that they have, but also in relation to kind of densely populated areas and high levels of poverty. But actually, what we've seen so far doesn't really follow that theoretical argument, does it? We've not seen too many countries so severely hit.
2: Yeah, a few months ago, there was definitely a lot of panic around what the direct impact would be. If you look at what's actually happened, and I guess I suppose the countries which are the biggest countries in an emerging market index, you've got countries there like China, Taiwan, South Korea, so predominantly Asian countries, and they have been less impacted. So China has pretty much got through hopefully the worst of the virus. I mean, there is the second, there is a risk of a second wave of the virus, but you're also seeing countries like South Korea and Taiwan, which are actually been kind of praised for their containment measures and how well they've been implemented. I suppose the worst country, in my opinion, um, has probably been Brazil. So, Bolsonaro was pretty slow and has been criticised quite heavily due to his response to the crisis. And you're seeing growth in cases pick up a lot there, more so than lots of other emerging market countries.
0: And that has reflected a little bit, I think, in the equity market performance, hasn't it? I mean, just looking at some numbers, it looks like Brazil is down about 50% year to date in terms of the equity markets. Whereas, like you say, in some other places, you mentioned China, Taiwan, South Korea, down a lot less. Exactly. And you mentioned the indirect effects there as well. I mean, a common theme I'm seeing in a lot of the Q1 performance commentaries is just around oil and oil exports. I mean, I guess it's easy to forget how many emerging market countries once you get outside China, are quite dependent on oil exports. I suppose you've got the Venezuelas, the Colombias, Russia. I'm sure there's others as well that I missed.
2: I suppose on the other side of that, you've got countries which are oil importers rather than oil exporters, such as China, a lot of Asian countries which might benefit from that. So one thing that we always talk about when we talk about emerging market investing is divergence. So lots of countries have got characteristics which are hugely different from each other and I think that's something which is definitely going to be amplified during this crisis.
1: And that's a really interesting point and what I think Dan you sort of have talked about in the past is does the brand emerging market still make sense because when you look under the bonnet actually there are so many different countries with such different dynamics and different sort of paths of growth and paths of emergence if you like which maybe it's worth just touching on now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I did a talk at the PLSA conference a couple of months ago on emerging markets. And as always, when I don't know very much about a topic, I try and avoid the issue by finding some fun facts that no one else knows and hope they don't notice. I don't really know very much about it, which is a great tactic, by the way, that tends to work for me every time. But for that one, I decided to go back and actually look at where the term emerging markets came from. And it's kind of an interesting story. It originated in 1981 was actually the year I was born as well, which means that the concept of emerging markets turns 40 next year, and so do I. Anyway, I digress. It originated in 1981 with a chap at the World Bank who was trying to put together a fund to invest in some of these developing countries. And I got this from a few sources online, so I guess it's true. He came up with a name of the Third World Equity Fund, and his <laughs> colleagues sort of said, look, we love the idea, but your name is not great. You need to go and work on the branding a bit. So he went away over the weekend and came back with the idea of emerging markets and I just think that has just stuck as a brand, like almost nothing else in the history of finance and investing, right? You've got whole businesses now that are built around the idea of emerging markets being a thing. And I guess the point I was making in that talk, there was a serious point to it, which was that's a 40-year-old idea, which probably in itself was based off that perception of the world from a decade or more before that. Is it still relevant? And I'm a big fan of that book, Factfulness. And if you've read it, and, and one of the points that Hans Rosling makes in that is that this idea of a sort of binary world where you've got developed and developing countries is increasingly very outdated and it's just not really where things kind of sit anymore.
1: It's interesting as well though, isn't it? Because there's clearly been a huge trend of globalisation in recent years. And I think within the trend of globalisation, Having a separate brand for emerging markets perhaps stops making sense over the long term. But actually, one of the things we've seen in this crisis is a slight trend to deglobalization. And actually, whether some countries looking inward a bit more means that that sort of brand makes sense, not forgetting the fact that all the countries within it are very different.
0: Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, even if the actual fundamental thinking behind that brand is a bit outdated, it still potentially has value in putting a label on things that otherwise would get maybe swallowed up or just sort of get ignored. And it, it does force you to have a debate around it, which maybe that's as important as anything.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's really helpful. You know, when I'm speaking to investors about their investment portfolio and how they allocate to various parts of the market, having the separate brand is a very helpful way of signposting it and having a conversation about the level of exposure compared to developed markets. Because I think when you look at sort of long-term growth forecasts, the expectation, as you'd probably expect, is that a large part of growth is coming from emerging markets. And so that tells me that in a a long-term investment portfolio, if I'm looking for growth, I should have a reasonable allocation to emerging markets specifically, more so than they sit within a market cap type split when you look at a broad equity index today, because that's not reflective of the future sort of division.
2: Yeah, completely agree. For me, that's one of the, when speaking to clients or kind of explaining why we think emerging markets are a good investment. um, The point you've mentioned, Mary, I think is one of the key arguments for me. So over the past few years, you've had about 40% of global GDP growth coming from emerging market countries, yet only 10% of a global market capitalization index is centered around on emerging market investments. So as they converge. As you get more representation of emerging market stocks in an index, you would expect more investor attention in those stocks just to do better.
0: Yeah. And the other statistic that I think I've seen you say as well, Inez, is just the split of the global population. What is it? Something like two thirds of people in the world live in emerging markets, which is quite striking, I find.
2: Yeah. I can't remember the exact stat that I mentioned, but it sounds about right. Yeah. So should
1: we talk a bit about how we see our clients access emerging markets?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah. Go on.
2: So in terms of our research view, I mean, it does depend on a client by client basis, but we usually would recommend active management. So what I mean by that is that it's not managed to a benchmark and that managers have got discretion to buy and sell securities that they think are more or less attractive. One of the main arguments for this is that we think emerging markets are less efficient than developed markets. And because of that, we just want managers to kind of pick and choose the investments, which they think are better or worse, really.
0: And that's within equities, I guess you're talking about there. And we also, I guess we also have some clients who access emerging markets with a multi-asset type fund where they that splits itself between emerging market equities and emerging market debt, which I guess is a slightly different risk return profile to the all equity sort of fund.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And I think in either equity or debt, we would advocate an active approach rather than a passive approach. Sort of largely similar reasons, the sort of concentrations that you see within the indices, either on the equity side or on the debt side, you end up with a lot of exposure to certain countries on the equity side. In particular, you're holding a lot in China. And so it's the sort of dislocations that Anais mentioned earlier, the fact that there are very different standards, for companies within different emerging markets compared to each other. The political risks, I think the ability for a manager, A, to avoid companies that potentially are managed in a bad way, or indeed governments, if it's government debt you're talking about. And B, being able to be quite dynamic in moving between different countries, different companies, different bonds over time. I think both of those aspects particularly look attractive when you think about emerging markets, how quickly things can change and the different standards that apply.
0: Yeah. And Ace, give us some sense of how many managers you sort of meet in emerging market equities and what are some of the things you're looking for in a good manager?
2: So we've got about 40 in total in our universe. So that's split across emerging market equity, emerging market multi-asset, and also regional emerging market equity funds. So funds which focus on emerging markets, but maybe more just in Asia or China. Something I find interesting is that our kind of good preferred approach for an EM manager might be slightly different to that of a global manager. So in general, for equities, we like boutiques. So smaller firms with a single product and they can fully put all their resource behind it. For emerging markets, that shifts a little bit and we do tend to prefer a larger house with lots of kind of resource on the ground presence. So people who are actually based in those emerging market countries and can readily interact with management. I guess some of the reasons for this, the emerging market universe is just so large and so diverse, as I mentioned earlier. There's also huge risks that we have seen this year materialize that in a crisis, a lot of funds tend to get withdrawn from emerging market investments. So you're seeing some managers really struggle with up to a fifth of their assets just withdrawn by investors who are just a bit cautious about emerging markets given all what's going
1: on in the world. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because so far, actually, emerging markets have We've seen falls, partly because uh, investors have been withdrawing, but we've not seen the coronavirus in particular have such a big impact. But it just is a risk on asset, isn't it? So people withdraw if they're perceived as a risky environment. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. And also, I guess it can have long periods of time where it sort of underperforms developed markets. And I guess we've had that really for a large part of the last decade, really, where emerging markets have sort of lagged behind. So I guess, yeah, you get into these kind of long term secular bear markets for EM, which just makes it tough to be a boutique manager who just runs that asset class, doesn't it? It does make sense.
2: Yeah, they are definitely a lot riskier or seen as riskier than developed markets. And because of that, we would prefer managers that have less concentrated portfolios. So when we're looking at a developed market manager, we might be comfortable for them to hold a lower number as about 20 to 30 stocks Whereas in emerging markets, we wouldn't really look to invest in any managers whose portfolios only hold 20 to 30 stocks. We'd want that number to be 50
0: upwards. Right. That's interesting. Any particular styles that you tend to sort of have a preference for in emerging markets or does it just depend on the manager?
2: I mean, it depends on the manager. We're not as keen on a kind of quantitative type manager than we would be in developed, I suppose. There are arguments that the data underlying emerging market stocks and securities just isn't as good as that for developed countries. We generally prefer an unconstrained approach, giving managers total freedom to access securities that look attractive. But that is something that we also like in developed markets as well.
1: And I guess that's partly why we like the multi-asset approach is that sort of flexibility that you're giving to the manager. I can't say with entire certainty whether in five years time I'll prefer equity or debt, but actually a manager that's able to be fairly dynamic on that. We view as attractive for a number of our clients, in particular, where you don't want to have to be making day-to-day decisions on that split and there's a lot of very good opportunities in the debt space. I think historically emerging markets have been viewed as very long term historically. It's been more of an equity play. actually there's some really good opportunities. The corporate bond market within emerging markets has grown really rapidly in recent years, so there's a lot of opportunities there to exploit if the manager's got the capability
0: yeah I mean one thing I've has frustrated me slightly over the years, listening to some emerging market managers and particularly debt managers has been. The fact that while you've got all these very diverse countries underpinning it, often the first paragraph of their performance report is always, what did the Fed do? What did the dollar do? And that driving quite a lot of the performance quite often because they failed to realize the Fed was going to hike by 25 base points or whatever. That always sort of annoys me a bit because you kind of think that kind of expecting a bit of diversification coming through here. And you don't feel you're getting that if it's just that sort of macro view, right? Yeah,
2: So one of the things that even if kind of a manager is pure bottom up, we always like them to have macro analysis featured in their kind of risk management approach. So a sort of top down overlay, just as a sense check, really. So if they're overweight to China, do they actually, because of the underlying securities, do they actually think that is the right place to be? So it is something that we do want all managers to be considerate of. And I suppose, I guess, that also ties into kind of our preference for a larger manager than it might be for developed markets because they're likely to have their own separate macro research teams which they can leverage off whereas a kind of more boutique manager that only has kind of bottom-up analysts might not necessarily have that kind of level of expertise.
0: Yeah and the way these managers operate, well they typically have a sort of asset allocation view that's separate to the bottom-up view? Or in other words, will they have a team that says, we want to be over or underweight China, and then separately a team that picks the stocks in there? Or will this sort of one emerge from the other?
1: So we generally prefer a holistic approach. So If it's multi-asset for example there are lots of different approaches you could take as you'd expect so some managers will say well we've got a really good equity team and a really good debt team and someone else a third team as you just referred to will decide on the split between them typically our preference is to have a we can invest anywhere and everywhere and we're going to come up with a consistent view across the board i think it's a slightly more robust way of constructing the portfolio so that you don't have any unintended consequences but as anna said you can sort of get around that by having a a robust risk system that tells you what your sort of resultant exposures are and make sure that you're not doing anything you're not expecting to do.
0: Right. And and Anais, what have been some of the big performance drivers then for managers over the last few years in emerging markets?
2: So I guess performance over the last few years will have been dwarfed quite a lot this year. I suppose one key year was 2017, where Performance in emerging markets was so kind of concentrated and really driven by the Chinese tech stocks. So, you were seeing any manager that was slightly underweight to Tencent or Alibaba seeing actually quite drastic levels of underperformance. So, some managers might have performed the benchmark by around 10%, with half of that just being due to slight underweights in those two stocks. So, there are Although there are kind of a lot of individual stocks in the universe at the top, the index is fairly concentrated.
0: Yeah, but that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's actually quite a strong parallel to developed markets there, right? In terms of the Fangs and the Facebooks and the Amazons and Googles of the world being concentrated. Actually, the EM index is even more concentrated than that. Is that right? Yeah.
2: So this year, you've seen Chinese equities perform particularly well well not particularly well but on a relative basis they've done a lot better than kind of some other countries Um, and a lot of that has been driven by their overweight to kind of tech so you've got 10 cent which is the second biggest stock in that index which is actually up 10 percent year to date which is actually quite
1: remarkable that's online gaming right that's online gaming well
2: yeah And also, I think that they might have been involved in kind of developing an app which tracks, which people are required to have on their phones, which tracks the
1: coronavirus and how that moves. Oh, okay. So part of their lockdown release measures. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I guess it's very easy to forget how big Tencent is, just because we don't really interact with any of their products day to day, like we would with, say, Facebook or Google. In terms of sectors, there's obviously a lot of similarities with developed markets. There, I know that's something you've a point you've made before, and they in looking at the sector similarities between emerging markets and developed markets.
2: Yeah, so I suppose there are a few key differences. Emerging markets, as you might expect, have a lower weight to healthcare but much higher um, and weights to kind of financials, consumer services, consumer discretionary than some regions.
0: And that's quite different to what you might naively think, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people might have in their head this idea that emerging markets is all about sort of manufacturing and industrials and developed markets is about tech and financials. But that really is, that's a very outdated sort of idea now, isn't it, where we are?
2: Yeah, definitely. So if you look at the UK index. So if you compare the UK with emerging markets, the UK actually has a far higher level of exposure to kind of oil, energy, material companies than emerging markets do. And emerging markets have got a lot more in kind of IT stocks than the UK. So could be seen as a little bit of a backward view.
0: Yeah. And I guess that just sort of goes back to the point that I was trying to make in that talk, I guess, where it was saying that In my view, the rationale for investing in EM is not so much that it's completely different, but it's just such a big part of the world and the industries might be sort of similar, but as a globally based investor, you still want to get sort of access to them. So while the name emerging might be a little bit unhelpful, it's still a useful label to have just to to gain access to the broadest possible global exposure you can. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I guess one of the things that we're also really focused on when we do all of our research, but emerging markets in particular, is ESG. So environmental, social and governance issues. As I mentioned sort of earlier on, there are very big differences in standards between different countries. And that sort of relates both to kind of working standards, living standards, but also kind of governance standards. So we do sort of give that quite a lot of weight when we're speaking to investment managers.
0: Is it just the case that EM countries and companies are generally just score worse on ESG factors or does it depend?
1: They generally
2: do across the board score worse on both governance, social and climate factors. So it's not one of those which is kind of dragging it down, but across the board, they are generally worse.
1: And I think what we're looking for from managers is an understanding of where companies and countries sit now, but in particular sort of positive indicators, because as Anna said, countries and companies might score worse across the board now, but actually it's looking for that company that will develop in the most effective way in relation to those various sort of risks and opportunities from ESG factors.
0: I remember, um, Anais, you and I did a selection recently, didn't we, for a client where we looked at some of these ESG metrics for emerging market managers. For example, you can look at the carbon footprint of companies compared to their sales.
2: As you might imagine, emerging markets are definitely a lot worse than developed markets in this area. I mean, if you look at some of the figures So for instance, carbon reserves, which is defined as tonnes of CO2 emitted per million dollars of market capitalisation. So emerging markets, as we've already said, make up around 10% of a global market cap index. However, that 10% contributes to half of the index's carbon reserves. So those figures are quite shocking, really.
1: It's astounding, isn't it?
2: Yeah.
0: But then I suppose, as we've seen, you can get particular managers with particular portfolios. If they're using that as a factor, you can end up with portfolios that are actually lower on the carbon footprint side if the manager's using that as a factor, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's, I suppose, one of the key arguments for looking at ESG. So, You would think over the long term that especially climate over recent years has just blown up, 2019, 2018. I don't think there's ever been so much focus on kind of the environment, the need to do more in regulation. And as if global standards converge, you would expect the standards in emerging markets to become a lot stricter and therefore companies that aren't kind of meeting um, those increased regulations to be penalised. So, yeah, I think it is something really important to be taking account of.
1: And I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you're strong on ESG, then the fact that most companies across the board score worse than developed market countries might point you to the conclusion, well, I shouldn't invest in emerging markets. I actually see it a different way. I see it as there's a really strong opportunity here for these emerging market countries, which are still feeling their way in terms of what their sort of long-term economy looks and feels and operates like, actually for them to develop in a way that's much more consistent with some of those climate goals than perhaps some developed market countries have developed. And we're sort of sitting here in our developed state, struggling to go backwards from that point. So, I think there's a really big opportunity if an active manager captures it and I think it comes back a bit to that discussion on active versus passive where if on average emerging market companies are scoring much worse it doesn't mean that that is the case for every single emerging market company actually there's going to be some real shockers in there and there's probably going to be some companies doing a lot of good work in that area.
2: And I don't even necessarily think that you need to avoid companies with kind of poor ESG scores at the moment, so long as those companies are kind of willing to be engaged with and willing to improve their practices. So you might actually see some companies which are scoring really badly because they're emitting tons of CO2 and just have poor governance and kind of social practices be kind of rewarded in terms of the stock market price because they start to make improvements in that area and just seen as a lot more attractive globally.
0: Yes, that's a potentially very sort of markets driven approach to to helping emerging markets come along that sort of journey towards a lower carbon sort of future, which is maybe a better alternative than a politically regulated driven one, which is always tougher to agree. Because if you get to a place where the capital inflows are nudging everything in that direction, that's probably quite a positive step. One obvious question when we're talking about emerging markets is, do they actually emerge?
2: So I suppose in terms of growth rates, you're seeing emerging markets grow or continuing to grow at a far faster rate than developed markets. I suppose the case that really stands out is China. It definitely has become a lot more kind of developed and urbanized over the years. You can kind of measure this by kind of percentage of the population that own a mobile phone, types of jobs, movements from kind of the agricultural to more urban sectors of the economy. But I suppose not necessarily all emerging markets will become developed markets over the long term because you would expect developed markets as well to advance and not every country in the world can become a developed market because then there will be nothing left.
1: So it's a measure of relativity more than it is a measure of how developed the country actually is. I think China's a really interesting one, though, because we've certainly had a lot of questions in the last couple of years, really, because China is such a big part in particular of the equity index to whether it should be carved out and actually become its own sort of standalone allocation. So when we're talking to clients about how they allocate their assets, do they allocate to a general emerging market type strategy, or do they actually carve out China and say, I'm gonna have a China specific strategy? And it's a question we've thought quite sort of hard about. And where we generally come down to is, we want managers to have, and I said earlier, the on the ground presence, the on the ground expertise, and the local knowledge. And as long as that is the case, Again, our preference is to have quite a dynamic strategy where there's an ability to allocate to China if China looks attractive, but also away from China at times when it looks less attractive. We've seen, I think, again this morning, trade tensions between the US and China potentially blowing up again. And it's moments like that where actually, despite China being a large part of of an index, if you're in a standalone allocation, there's nowhere to hide necessarily, whereas in a broader approach, you are able to lessen the allocation if you see some near-term risks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That debate, I suppose, is almost a recognition that these terms, developed and emerging, don't quite perfectly fit. And then maybe there is this sort of middle group, and maybe it's just a middle group of one at the moment, which is China, where you've got a country that has developed quite a lot, but just not quite got our head around putting it into the developed bucket for now, or that's just not quite suitable. So yeah, perhaps the ideal situation is you almost have a three bucket kind of global equity allocation policy that then very much comes down to individual clients' preferences as to whether that's a road they want to go down to look at it in that way. Yeah,
1: it just always comes back, doesn't it, to the fact that we, as humans, we quite like labels. I like to be able to put something in a box. (laughs) If it fits in a box, then I know where I stand with it. So I think sometimes this discussion gets a bit uncomfortable because these boxes feel too rigid for what's inside. But there we go.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's, It's the boxes and sort of the benchmarks as well, isn't it? You're right, because you could just say, well, fine, get rid of all the boxes and just let a manager select between every stock in the world. But then, of course, we know what happens then is that They have to start from somewhere and where they start from is an index. And that in itself bakes in certain assumptions around the allocation to these areas. So it's so hard to get away from those human (laughs) needs to either bucket stuff or to reference ourselves to something else, which is difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So how about looking forwards then? So what's our forward-looking view on emerging markets and how they sort of fit into a broader growth portfolio picture?
2: So I suppose... It's not really specific to emerging markets, but the short term our view is that there could be lots of volatility in the asset class due to things that I've mentioned. So the risk of the virus itself, there's always a scope for a second wave of the virus, particularly in Asia, where they've seemed to largely have recovered from it. One thing we have managed to get through most of this podcast without mentioning, which we wouldn't have done in a few months ago, is the US election. So there is the election coming up at the end of the year. Mary, you spoke about trade tensions beginning to kind of reappear. And I guess if Trump is re elected, um, there is the potential for trade tensions to kind of reemerge in 2021, 2022 where Trump also doesn't have kind of the risk or the balance of having another election on the horizon to kind of hold him accountable. I suppose another factor to mention would be kind of trade on more of the short term. So emerging markets are kind of net exporters in the fact that they make a lot of products and they ship to the rest of the world, if the kind of recession that we're anticipated Or if the recession that we're in kind of gets a lot worse, you would expect emerging markets to have or to be impacted kind of from a knock-on trade effect. There's less demand in advanced economies, so there's less products to actually make in emerging market countries. Over the long term, kind of our view is still a positive one. So we have kind of four asset class views going from a double minus to a double plus emerging markets we've currently got rated at a single plus due to the arguments that kind of we've mentioned earlier so at the moment there's only 10% of kind of the global stock market represented by emerging market countries yet 40% of gdp comes from emerging markets so you would expect those two to become a bit more consistent with each other i suppose other kind of long-term arguments are still there. So productivity is improving a lot more in emerging market countries than it is in developed markets, particularly if you look at the UK where productivity has been pretty much flat, hasn't been increasing over the past few years. Also a demographic point. So emerging market countries do have a growing proportion of middle-class workers, which isn't necessarily the case in developed markets. So as the proportion of middle income workers grows, that kind of frees up more of their money to spend on kind of different goods and services in emerging market countries that they wouldn't necessarily have bought before.
0: Exactly. So that creates more of a domestic market for them, doesn't it? Which then moves them away from that dynamic of kind of like exporters to the developed world. And once those, you said, two thirds of the world's population or whatever living in those countries, and once they become sources of big domestic demand in their own right, then I suppose those markets and those economies become more self-sustainable and less sort of just dependent on global trade flows and trade wars and those sort of things
1: it's funny isn't it because we feel like we're in living in exceptional times at the moment and actually the if i was to summarize the sort of outlook in a very short sentence it's kind of long term growth short term risks which is probably exactly the answer i'd have given no matter when you'd asked me in recent years so and i guess the short term risks is the reason why Generally, we encourage our clients to view an emerging market investment as almost an illiquid one. That's not to say that it is illiquid because you can realise it usually on a daily or monthly basis, depending which fund you're invested in. But actually, if you view it as a 10-year play, for example, and you don't try and sell it in 10 years, history shows us that that should be quite a good long-term investment. If you're thinking you're likely to want to sell it in two or three, then actually you can see these short-term headwinds that could throw you off track.
0: If you had particularly tough conversations with clients who've been looking at emerging markets over the last few years and and seen it lagging a little bit and been challenging that, or do clients generally accept what's happened?
1: I think that gets at a very important question that applies across the board with us as investment consultants is making sure that our clients understand what they're investing in when they sort of make the decision. And for us, it's our day job. And for a lot of the people that we work with, it's a side not project, but it's a a side thing to their day job. So actually reminding quite frequently for the rationale for buying the investment, I think is, is essential for us as consultants. I've generally not had too many very difficult conversations. You end up with the odd manager versus market type conversation, inevitably as time passes, and then the manager starts doing better and those questions stop typically. But I think most of our clients knew what they were sort of getting into when they were sold the idea of emerging markets.
0: One thing that stands out to me is that the sheer dispersion of manager returns in emerging markets does seem a little bit bigger. I mean, I guess we've talked about some of the risks, some of the smaller countries, the difference between Brazil and China returns so far this year. I've certainly seen some managers that have both outperformed and underperformed by pretty big amounts in emerging markets, much more so than you expect to see in developed, I guess.
2: Yeah, I suppose part of that will depend on their approach. So this isn't particularly distinct for emerging markets, but across the board globally, you're seeing value stocks, which are kind of regarded by the market as having less quality than kind of growth stocks having performed worse. Kind of an emerging market manager, which is more focused on value will have underperformed kind of a growth orientated emerging market manager fairly considerably
1: this year. So just as we're wrapping up, Anais, how can listeners find you, the material that you release?
2: So my contact details are on the LCP website. So if you type in my name, so A-N-A-I-S is how it's spelt. My profile should come up there. I'm also on LinkedIn. Great.
0: Great. So a quick one before we finish then, Anais. I've got the lightning round. So we've got a number of things. and I just want you to say whether you think it's overrated or underrated. I know you're going to be good at getting off the fence here. So here we go. Tech stocks.
2: I don't know (laughs) I would have always said overrated but
0: go with your gut macro forecasts overrated Netflix
2: underrated the Fed overrated
0: the big short
2: underrated
0: really Bitcoin overrated okay and finally AI threat or opportunity opportunity excellent okay Final question before we go, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing in investing?
2: For me, it's probably how topical and tied in it is to the real world. So I feel like you've really seen that this year. So things which a lot of people or things that I might not have imagined coming into this field five years ago or so was how one person's tweet, whether that's Trump um, talking about China or Kylie Jenner talking about Snapchat being over
1: can really impact markets. That's a good one.
0: Yeah, that is a good one.
1: So, Anais, as your parting gift for the listeners, do you have any recommendations, books, films, TV shows, podcasts? I guess something which we couldn't get enough
2: of over the past few years was Brexit and I watched a Brexit drama on Netflix yesterday which I enjoyed so if you're missing that which I actually am a little bit because I think it was better than talking about coronavirus <laughs> <laughs>
1: I never would have thought that there's a documentary on Netflix to watch was that the one with Benedict Cumberbatch or yes. was it, uh, yeah it was I really good. enjoyed that too yeah
0: I've not seen that what's it called
1: Brexit Brexit <laughs> it's
0: just called Brexit Simple yeah. name. I imagine it could be titled Great. Well, Anise, thank you so much. That's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed talking emerging markets today.
1: Great. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks, Anise. That's all we've got time for this week. Join us again next week for another episode of Investment Uncut. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.